Six Walks is a series of audio walking tours, commissioned by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, ACCA, and released in the lead-up to the forthcoming exhibition and research project Who's Afraid of Public Space, opening in the summer of 2021 into 2022. Continuing ACCA's series of big-picture exhibitions, Who's Afraid of Public Space explores the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space, and the character and composition of public life itself, engaging with contemporary art and cultural practices to consider critical ideas as to what constitutes public culture and to ask, and who might it be for? Six Walks continues a rich history of artists, writers and thinkers engaging with, describing and depicting the various pleasures of walking. This program began as an invitation to six Melbourne-based writers to develop a narrative response to an area of the city that held a particular interest to them, either personally or professionally, socially or culturally. The six walks were largely written while under strict COVID-related lockdowns, at a time when walking was one of the few freedoms afforded to those of us in Melbourne. The series release has been timed to coincide with the easing of these restrictions, allowing for expanded horizons and encouraging a renewed interest in our surrounding natural and urban environments and to the narratives, knowledge and histories latent within them. Across six walks, writers Idil Ali, Tima Ball, Tony Birch, Sophie Cunningham, Eleanor Jackson and Christos Shokas take us from the Birrarung to Royal Park, from regal cinemas to abandoned military defence force bases, tracing desire lines as much as designated paths. They tackle concerns from public housing to motherhood, colonisation, migration, gentrification, restoration, surveillance, resilience, leisure and pleasure. In following their words, walking becomes a form not only of art and literature, but of thinking, observing, research, remembering, poetry, protest, mapping and making. What is revealed is a complex portrait of Melbourne as a city that is constructed from diverse, diverging and overlapping cultural, social, political, economic and historical paths. Hidden between parkland and suburbia along the Maribyrnong River, a 128-hectare site, formerly occupied by the Australian Defence Force, lies vacant as government planners and private developers speculate its future use. Timur Ball takes us on a walk around the periphery, considering the colonial history of the site, its use by the military in producing explosives and ammunition, its eerie abandonment in the present day and predicted future gentrification. Considering the resonance between the military history of the site and the unprecedented limitations imposed upon Melbourne during COVID-related lockdowns, Timmer asks, as the city begins to open again, what futures can we imagine as we walk past the site's foreboding walls? Timmer Ball is a non-fiction writer, researcher and creative practitioner of Baladong Noongar heritage. In 2018, she co-created Wild Tongue Zine for Next Wave Festival with Aja Kulpinska, which interrogated labour inequality across the arts industry. In her various projects, Timmer has continued to investigate the links between gentrification, racial inequality and housing affordability. In 2016, she won the Westerly magazine Patricia Hackett Prize, and her writing has appeared in a range of anthologies and literary journals. Six Walks has been conceived to be ideally listened to in situ, with headphones on a personal mobile device. Maps, directions and access notes are included with each walk to assist with orientation. 
ACCA reminds participants to be aware of their surroundings and to adhere to road safety guidelines at all times. Please note that when undertaking a walk, participants must assume personal responsibility for any liability, injury, loss or damage in any way connected with their experience of six walks. Recorded in podcast format, six walks can also be listened to from anywhere and at any time. Text versions of each walk are also available for download. Part 1. Trespassers will be prosecuted. A security light with thin spikes around its light bulb looks down at you, as if the metal shards are just moments away from falling. It stands behind a series of signs along a barbed wire fence, illuminating the forbidden territory pressed against trendy suburban townhouses. One sign states, Warning, do not trespass. The site was a former explosive factory and contains hazardous material. Trespassing constitutes an offence under the Crime Act 1914 and the Commonwealth Defence Act 1903. While the other proclaims that trespassing is prohibited and it is punishable for a person to be on this property without a lawful excuse. The first time I noticed the large area securely fenced off from the neighbouring pocket park where I stood and the row of two-storey homes with meticulous furnished balconies eager for people to gather, but always empty. There was a distinctive hole in the barbed wire fence behind a group of shrubs and small trees. It was large enough for an adult to crawl through and had most likely been cut with pliers, leaving a clean circular entry into the prohibited world. It mocked the signs above it inviting me in as it whispered that a lawful excuse is not always needed. And it was tempting to rebelliously disobey the aggressive laws which hung above me as I imagined what the people who entered were like and if they were still there, somewhere in the vast area, in one of the 400 run-down buildings doing something new within the wreck. I assumed they did it regularly and that there was a map, a map somewhere marking all the holes they had cut into private properties across the city. A friend had briefly found one of these openings, a former hat factory in an industrial area of West Melbourne. Abandoned and fenced up, she found a small gap or opening that had been widened through the fence and entered through a roller door, which had also been wedged open, to find herself in another place. 
Inside, hundreds of hats that were never worn littered the ground. Felt fedoras, visors and fascinators, plain and ornate, amongst the industrial sewing machines collecting dust against the rolls of fabric that still looked new. She said she felt connected to something, trying on hats that she would never wear, noticing that there were birthday cards, an empty cheesecake factory box and coloured streamers in the kitchen area, as if the staff morning tea had just happened. She encouraged me to go there if I ever needed to be someone else. But I arrived too late. A vacant concrete block and a mannequin lying face down in the back corner were the only things left. I checked the address again and again, hoping I was wrong, but it was correct. The building had gone, demolished for future development, its emptiness taunting me, knowing I would never enter this other place. Staring through the opening in the wire fence, a small weatherboard shack appeared in the vacuous defence site grounds. Its presence was puzzling. It seemed to stare at me like it was asking me to enter. What stories did her deteriorating paint hold? What did she want to tell me? She seemed so different to the large, imposing buildings, making her connection to the broader defence site seem unclear, unsure why she was there, when she looked like an image from a ghost story, a place where lost children disappear. Her fragile structure seemed unusual with the enormous area acquired by the Australian government in 1908, in order to build explosive factories, which would later supply ammunition for both world wars. The area was originally developed into five distinct precincts. There was the administration section, which included offices and laboratories, notably different in their design to the production buildings, and acted as the key entrance point and focus of the site the propellant section. It was established to produce cordite buildings and structures which contained nitroglycerin production, acid and chemical production, gun cotton production, incorporation of gun cotton and cordite with mineral jelly and acetone, pressing and reeling the cordite and drying and storage of it after. There was the detonator section which was well separated from the explosives area. This section was established for the production of initiators, priming caps for shells and other explosives. There was the high explosives filing section. This included buildings erected for filing mines and depth charges in addition to explosive artillery shells. And lastly, there was the Cordite Administration and Workshop Buildings. 
This included production buildings and storage magazines associated with the production of naval cordite. But within this large and dominating terrain, the small shacks stood alone, separated from these precincts, like she had a different relationship to this place, like she knew things. And the desire to speak to her grew. I wanted to know how the Defence Force had used her, what activities had occurred in the delicate shelter she provided. Or was she built for something else? A place of respite for the women in the 1940s who worked in the explosive factories on the production line of big gun ammunition while men went to war. There were murmurs in the tree movements. And I began to imagine white women from explosive factories assembled in the little shack on their cigarette breaks, discussing the war. Imagining the future of a nation that they helped to build amongst the white cypress pine trees in native vegetation. The survivors of another war that these women didn't recall. As Gumeroy poet Alison Whitaker writes, many girls white linen, men with guns and harsher things, white women amongst gums, white linen, starcher things, later plaques will mark this war. As I left the derelict shack, her interlocking narratives started to leave a mark, a mark for those who could not see this war. The next time I visited the defence site, the possibility of entering felt different. I was less curious about the conflict contained and whether rocket propellers, bombs and missiles were waiting to explode military staff and special agents working in the underground bunkers whose concrete entrances were just visible beneath the moulds of grass that grew over these buildings to keep us out, did not haunt me anymore. These geographies had inverted. And to enter the site was to escape the military surveillance which now pervaded suburbia where ADF soldiers brushed past you in parks, monitoring your allocated exercise breaks. And the public became private, watching TV announcement from our homes, waiting until they said we could leave. Walking along the fence, I stopped. Something was missing. Slowly realising that the opening had gone, only the barbed wire, carefully re-sewn, was visible. The faint marking that the mend had left was like a memory of those who got in and the opportunity that had vanished from me. Where did the hole in the fence go? Seeing in but forced out, the boundary of private and public space had a strange porousness, 
knowing that people had entered while I was locked out, almost seeing their shadows as if they remained inside. The neatly mended wire illuminated the security present that those on the outside were left with. Unsure where we go when we can't go anywhere, as ADF soldiers circled the river reminding us that we shouldn't be here beyond the exercise rule. But I kept walking in the allocated daily time slots, searching for openings into abandoned buildings, a hole in the fence, for places to go when you're lost and unsure if you want to be found again. Part two, contaminated land. History is as flimsy as the PowerPoint presentation. I was asked to assist with at work, outlining future development options for parcels of vacant land in Meribinong, contaminated by former industrial use. Industrial use, a peculiar term which reoccurs in planning that shifts the detrimental impact of development onto someone or something else. It incites images of factory workers on production lines, manufacturing cars, railway equipment, or military ammunition. Like these individual actions are responsible for land degradation, rather than the social systems that shaped Western industry to begin with. In Maribyrnong, vacant land is also marked by Aboriginal cultural heritage, triggering a cultural heritage management plan before construction can begin. Following my colleague's request to assist with this presentation, I raised concerns that further consultation with traditional owners and registered Aboriginal parties were required and marked the point on the map where the developable land parcels intersected with Aboriginal cultural heritage and created a slide outlining these issues. When I returned to the PowerPoint presentation a few days later, prior to a stakeholder meeting, I noticed that the slide had been removed. Instead, a detailed environmental remediation strategy to minimise land use conflict associated with future developments was included. Land use conflict. Another peculiar term which reoccurs in planning that shifts the detrimental impact of development onto someone or something else. Where land use buffers and contamination plans manage the location of sensitive uses, such as housing, in informer industrial areas, rather than acknowledge that the conflict was started by the system, which proclaims to manage it. A system which is triggered by industrial use and land use conflict, but remains indifferent to the pale green circle on the planning map 
which marks the area of Aboriginal cultural heritage as the PowerPoint slide is removed. History is as flimsy as the local newspaper article in the West Sider, where concerned residents from local community groups feared that the future development of the Maribyrnong Defence Site was unlikely to incorporate and acknowledge its rich past. A place that was responsible for supporting world wars, not just in the production of ammunition, but through the development of a remount depot, supplying cavalry and artillery horses for the army established in the Fisher Stables, where horses were trained, then sent to the front in World War One. A history that, according to the Friends of Sandy Group, lacks recognition, demanding that a memorial is needed to commemorate Sandy, the only horse to return from the First World War, and all the other horses that were trained at the defence site. Horses which were brought from all over Australia and were broken in, trained and shipped off to the First World War with only one returning home safely. Sandy, in 1918, who spent the rest of his life on the site and is now buried down there somewhere near the community centre. The Department of Defence have organised for us to have a memorial near Fisher's Stables, but in the interim, there needs to be a temporary location to commemorate Sandy. We're keen that the history of this site is remembered and in some way celebrated, because as a multicultural society, a lot of people don't know about the history of the country that they've come to. But what should people know about the country that they've come to? And what do they never find out? Like the lives that were lost in the other war. Lives that were never noticed to begin with. And the plaques that remain absent because they mark the things we were meant to forget. History is as flimsy as the 1999 Maribyrnong Aboriginal Heritage Study, which remains incomplete. Available on the internet, we've tracked changes and gaps in the content, like a map towards something promising, but always just out of sight. The study surveyed the former Commonwealth Explosives Factory within the defence site, but due to delays in obtaining permission to access certain sections, many areas were missed. The sites that were studied were heavily disturbed by the factories, impacting the archaeological significance contained. It was found that the ridge along the horseshoe bend of the river would have almost certainly been used by the Bunurong, Bunurong Wurundjeri people as a campsite and meeting place. 
that any physical remains of their camps on the ridgeline had been completely destroyed by the construction of the buildings and facilities. Construction also destroyed swamplands, a landscape which had existed in the area prior to colonisation. However, silcrete was found, a type of stone which is the most widely used material in the production of tools for the peoples of the Kulin nations. While the explosive factories and accompanying facilities eroded physical and environmental places of significance, the legacy of colonisation was most gruelingly captured by the study in sections documenting settler encounters and their crude interpretation of the Kulin peoples in the 19th century. Alfred Solomon, son of Joseph Solomon, one of Maribyrnong's earliest European settlers and personal friend of John Batman, was recorded as witnessing corroborees around the 1840s, stating that Aborigines were everywhere, and the nights were split asunder by the sound of corroborees and fights between rival tribes. Nearly every night a corroboree was gone through with all its grotesque and barbaric accompaniments of music beaten by the lubras on possum skin rugs and the songs of excitement. Other accounts provided by Reverend J.R. Orton, who had come to Melbourne to set up a mission within the township, reported how four to five hundred Aboriginal people would gather in the area along the Maribyrnong River to settle disputes, stating, Upon their meetings, a few spears were thrown, but without any serious consequences. And then this vast assemblage of sable savage warriors terminated their disputes by a succession of corroborees for several nights. It appears to be part of their design in these native dances for the several tribes to corroboree or dance to each other as an intended mark of respect or compliment, performing a variety of gesticulations, grimaces, shoutings and yellings of the most ludicrous and appalling kind, whilst the other tribe is seated on the ground, paying the most profound attention, occasionally expressing their approval by shouts and laughter. These men's disgrading attitudes captured in the study are eclipsed by Kulin culture, which reverberates through the generations who continue to express identity and sovereignty in new ways. But more than just a record, the study went further, developing several recommendations to address the impact Western development had made on the landscape and culture, suggesting that the land bordering the south bank of the Maribyrnong River, including the former Maribyrnong Explosives factory site, be managed as a cultural landscape, including ter interpretation of the area for appropriate revegetation and an Aboriginal cultural heritage interpretation trail 
to celebrate the area as an Aboriginal place. Far removed from the market compulsion to build and capitalise on Kulin land. Land that is interpreted as vacant and its vacancy viewed as opportunity. It instead recommended that Aboriginal sites were protected within the local planning policy framework. The study proposed that an Aboriginal heritage zoning plan and associated policies on Aboriginal heritage be attached to the planning scheme as instruments to assist planners with strategic planning decisions, respecting Aboriginal sites and places. It is troubling to know that in 1999, a new planning methodology was imagined which in a small way acknowledged the fallacy of terra nullius. But like a slide in a PowerPoint presentation, it disappeared. Part 3. A Speculative Dream In 2010, long before the real estate agent turned developer was even born, he discovered that the Victorian Planning Authority had developed a policy position and planning framework for the Maribyrnong Defence Site, as it represented a major urban renewal opportunity in an established area already undergoing significant growth and transformation. The critical outcomes included the establishment of a new community, housing options at appropriate varied densities, types and scale to suit the location, including social and affordable housing, and conservation of indigenous and historic heritage, including the adaptive reuse of significant heritage and building elements an open market disposal to sell the site on behalf of the Commonwealth had also commenced. But despite interest from heavyweights such as Mervax, Dockland and Fraser's Property Australia, a sale was never secured, most likely due to the cost of environmental remediation, which was likely to be more expensive than the cost of the land itself. In 2020, the site still remained abandoned as both developers and government continued to speculate its future, imagining a new community that would evolve in the suburb, Remount Hill, a name which was proposed to reflect its long history as a manufacturing plant for cordite and other materials used to make military explosives. Looking through old websites, piecing together the visions and plans that had never eventuated, Sam went through his urban design framework again, 
conscious to double check that nothing was missing. It set the guiding principles for an infinite future where resources, community connectedness, jobs, social infrastructure and pleasure coalesced in an endless cycle of equitable prosperity. Infinite. He enjoyed how the word sounded and what it represented, relieved that it had replaced the buzzwords that his millennial parents had gravitated towards. Words like sustainability, resilience, intergenerational equity, decoloniality, social justice. What had it all meant? And what had they hoped for in an era where TED Talks saturated online landscapes and people talked about careers and projects in the built environment that didn't actually exist? Infinite brought the past, present and future together in an understanding that cities encompassed their multiple histories, which had never ended because they were always re-beginning. And the longing for contemporary urban living found a meeting point with nature because possibility was endless and opportunity immeasurable. The design framework carefully maintained many of the old buildings from the defence days, including the treatment facility and the strange pipes which ran along the exterior of the building, which looked onto the river trail at the base of Canning Reserve. People would be proud to think of the bespoke reuse and that these snake-like cylinders which covered their apartment building had become something else. Pipes that had once emitted byproducts from the production of nitroglycerin acid and gun cotton would now service the 16 two-bedroom apartments with fresh water. Sam was close to getting a permit, the final legal barrier before he could realise his vision for an infinite future. Purchasing the site was the easy part, but he hadn't anticipated the myriad of applications and amendments he would need to adhere to. As he wondered what the planning system was and why it still existed, when people were capable of deciding where and how they wanted to live. Instead, he had to follow a series of rigid rules, as if planners with their augmented sense of authority had any better understanding of environmental impact, integrated transport, cultural heritage and affordable housing than he did. The desire to maintain planning and the form in which it continued to operate within had for him become an ironic self-parody. It protected property from the action of neighbours but also restricted the freedom of owners to do what they wished with their property in the first place. 
But the variables, the pressures, the rewards and the penalties that moulded planning behaviour were consistently denied by the profession. Like they were better than the real estate agents and developers. People like him that were never given a seat at the table in the discussions of the future. Planners thought that they were different and couldn't see that they were the instruments of the market and the variables were based in consumer demand where what the consumer wanted ultimately determined what the product would be. Recently, a colleague had started hearing rumours of a positive planning movement, a radical uprising where urban policy and planning professionals started to acknowledge that the profession had historically been part of the problem and made conscious steps to become part of the solution, to stop, reflect, educate themselves and ultimately do better. Because social change mattered and so did planning and there were new ways to work together. Protests started to emerge in the CBD, shouting, climate change in our backyards, or CIBY, C-C-I-B-Y for short. Painted on large placards without realising that they were selling the same dream as the developers they despised. The dream of owning your own backyard to protect to begin with. We're fighting for your private property against climate change was just a $500,000 mortgage away. While the masses scampered to the remaining shade in the overcrowded parks that had endured after deregulation. Sam liked honesty and had always resented the reputation his profession had developed over time. Confused why they had become the symbol of capitalism's most grotesque characteristics. When they were really just dream facilitators, supporting people through one of the most significant and intimate decisions of their lives. An experience they understood, dedicated to delivering their clients a delicate balance between location, architecture, social cohesiveness and connection to nature. There would never be a positive developer or positive real estate movement because they had nothing to hide. Committed to producing the best in residential construction and design the West had ever seen, Sam envisaged an intimate pocket of apartments fused with the snippets of remaining nature secluded by the river's horseshoe bend. The exhilarating transformation of the Maribyrnong defence site would reinforce the original inhabitants 
believing that it was important to acknowledge their contribution to this great country as well. By creating a textured render on the exterior of some apartments as a homage to the campsites and corroborees which had once occurred along the river's edge by the people of the Kulin nations. Imbued with Japanese design principles, he wanted to provide innovative, thoughtful, community-enriched living for the site's future residents. Timber and polished concrete flooring, intricate joinery and brass fittings took their cue from the exterior where the explosiveness of war and missiles became a marbled pattern in the blue stone flooring. And the underground bunkers were radically transformed as a network of community gardens, featuring aquatic plants and weeds, replicating the swamplands which once featured in the landscape. The interior was a tactile palette of materials designed to invoke a sense of warmth, culture and tranquility, responding to the original inhabitants as if you could feel their feet and rhythm dancing the corroborees from Australia's pre-colonial past echoing beneath your feet. High ceilings and dual aspect windows were developed to invite the outside in, with city views that corresponded to the surrounding river, where residents found a nexus between urbanism and the wild, untamable contours of Mother Nature. Sam was in the process of organising billboards which would be erected along the Westgate Freeway, advertising the dream. 15% affordable dwellings, attainable to the lower middle classes. A promise he had made to give a portion of his returns, given he only had to sell 60% to make a profit. His name and number would be printed along the side of the billboard in red, anticipating the buzz of his phone as people registered for the beginning of their new life. Where your house was both a financial asset and physical manifestation of your ultimate self. It was tempting to start building, to dig the first hole, to touch the timber and smell the concrete mix as he waited for the final planning approval and permit to come through. It was his entrance into a new world, created from what was always there. He had found the future and it was infinite. Exploding the Maravanong. Prologue. At home, the present has no relationship to the future 
and public space is starting to vanish into the realm of privacy, determined by a tenuous radius. In my small apartment, crisply white, history is as flimsy as the planning report that states that the property I live in is impacted by development contribution plan overlays, design and development overlays, heritage overlays, land subject to inundation overlays. But according to the document, no tangible or intangible Aboriginal cultural heritage sensitivity exists in the land parcel where I now live. I present this story about place and space from Kensington on the Bunurong, Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung lands of the Eastern Kulin Nations and pay respect to their ongoing sovereignty. Acknowledging the privilege and reciprocity that I have received from their lands that flourish, even as the planning scheme has attempted to devour them. From a cloistered apartment, I write about space from a position of spacelessness, aware that anyone who listens may approach this audio from multiple physicalities, positions, or perspectives. Walking along the Maribyrnong River Trail, noticing the scattered remnants of a military defence site eerily visible through a hostile barbed wire fence. Riding the full perimeter of the 128 hectare site by bike, or even canoe or kayak, along the river itself, possibly the only way you could slip into the prohibited areas unnoticed, disembarking onto the bank of the horseshoe bend along the river, and unlikely perhaps to be caught as you enter a slit in the fence. Or you could even listen from your own home which is increasingly indistinguishable from other spaces, where online geographies enter our rooms and we are anywhere and everywhere but somehow always out of place. Witnessing a story about an abandoned military explosives factory wrapped by the Maribyrnong River from Google Maps. Six Walks has been commissioned by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art as part of the exhibition Who's Afraid of Public Space? For more information about the exhibition and to listen to other walks in this series, please visit ACCA's website, acca.melbourne. ACCA acknowledges the support of Creative Victoria in the development of the Six Walks series.